Well, good morning, everyone. If, as Tim prayed, forgiveness is free, then does it really matter how I live? If, as Tim prayed, God deals with us not on the basis of our moral performance or our good works, or the fact that you're trying hard will get you no credit with God, why bother at all? If it's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, how I really live doesn't really matter, does it? If what the Bible teaches is true, if grace is real, and the gospel message is not be a moral person, perform religious duties, behave a certain way, earn God's love by pure living, but if the gospel message is, in fact, God's merciful actions in Christ on our behalf as a gift to us, then haven't we just removed all incentive to live differently? Why battle hard against sin? Why pursue righteousness if my sin, if your sin, is so easily and completely forgiven? Have you ever asked yourself these questions? Maybe you have a skeptical friend at the office or in the classroom or a neighbor who has asked these questions. How do you answer their skepticism? Taken to its logical conclusion, if they're connecting the dots, maybe you've even heard this question posed to you. Are you saying that Hitler, if he just believed that Christ was his representative, that Christ took His punishment upon the cross for His sin, that if He cried out to God in mercy by faith and accepted God's free gift of salvation, are you telling me even Hitler could go to heaven? Now, if you've been reading the book of Romans, then you kind of have to conclude and by answering by saying, well, no one is so evil that they cannot receive grace, and no one is so good that they don't need grace, so yes. If Hitler did that, he could go to heaven too. Well, that's an awkward conversation to have. And then they'll say, well, that's it. That proves it then. I can live however I want. Just make sure I make up good with God at the end. It doesn't matter how I live. If being made right with God is by grace because of His mercy, then aren't we actually promoting a very dangerous doctrine? Surely people are going to take advantage of this. In fact, by the way, historically, this was actually one of the very same arguments that the Roman Catholic Church made against the Reformers when they championed the doctrine of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, if you look at Paul's own writing, if Romans 5.20 is correct, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, then if Jesus likes to forgive then I'm going to help him out by living a really impure life and have him give a lot of things to forgive. All for the glory of God. I can live however I want because Jesus likes to forgive. And obviously, it's a perversion of grace, but it is a possible scenario that someone might come up with because this wouldn't have been the first time. In fact, this is the very thing some of Paul's opponents accused him of. Remember he said that in Romans chapter 3, verse 8. And why not do evil? That good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. What would you say to your skeptical friend at the office or the classroom or your neighbor next door? What do you say to yourself? If grace does away with our sin, 
if forgiveness is offered because of Christ, what motivation is there for us to fight against our wayward desires? Why fight hard against sin? Doesn't forgiveness encourage more sin, not less? I'll never forget when I bumped up against the realities of Romans 6 with my three-year-old son, Asa. He had done something wrong, and Lori and I had developed this whole idea of using uh, punishment as a means to point them to the cross and the gospel, and kids give you lots of opportunities to do that. And so we had this whole system that when you disobey, disobedience is sin, sin brings separation from God, and sin always brings pain, and ultimate, that ultimate disobedience, that, excuse me, that ultimate separation, that ultimate pain, we will face on judgment day, and so every punishment is a foreshadowing of that judgment day, and so we'd go through this whole process, and so we want them to realize they don't want pain, they want the blessings that flow from obedience, not the pain that comes from disobedience, and so they knew this routine. And so we're always trying to build onto them consequences and, and talking about the gospel. So Asa knew the routine, and I sat him down. I said, Asa, you disobeyed, and you know what that means. My disobedience needs to be punished, yes. And as a good parent, I want to punish you so this pain will make you say, I don't want the pain that's to come. I want obedience. He got it. So I sat him down. As a good parent, what do I need to do? You need to punish me. I said, yes, but thank God we have a Savior. And guess what that Savior did, Asa? He looks at me because he's three. He's not really getting the gospel message quite yet. I said, that Savior took our punishment for us. So I'm going to get your punishment. And, I, and he's not knowing what's coming next. And I turned around and I started spanking myself, you know? <laughs> I know you can't unsee that. But <laughs> the look in this three-year-old's eyes, he was, this is awesome. I disobey, and you're going to get spanked. Here's the thing, parental enthusiasm notwithstanding, if even a three-year-old child could conclude that if grace means we get off scot-free, then what motivation is there to be different? Doesn't grace mean we can live any way we want? Doesn't grace mean we can continue in our sin? You see, That's the simple question that's being asked here in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It's a very simple question that then in in verses 2 to 14, Paul gives us a really surprising answer in light of this question, and then he kind of ends this passage with some commands for us. So what I want to do is I want to back up a little bit into chapter 5 so we can get some of the context and roll into the argument that Paul is dealing with here. So I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5, verse 20. To Romans chapter 6, verse 1. This is what Paul writes. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So that's the simple question by which Paul now gives a surprising answer, and it's one word, no! By no means, Paul says. As a matter of fact, this is the, one of the most grammatically strong ways that Paul can denounce this idea. If it were today, we might say something like, are you insane? You're joking, right? Or really? Uh, the, 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 the implication is that the conclusion is so patently obvious to even raise the question uh, is, is, is a, an indictment against your intellect. For you even to ask such a thing. 
Now, to be clear, it's not that Paul is questioning the fact that Christians, that there can be sin in Christians' life. We'll deal with that in greater detail at the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. Here at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul is questioning the reality that we as Christians will still choose to live under sin's domain. So he's not, he's not necessarily questioning that Christians can sin. He's questioning the moral incongruity of it. Why would you even want to do that, in other words? So what is the patently obvious fact that Paul is alluding to? You see it right there. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? You see, Paul's answer to this question might seem a bit odd to us, but what he's saying is, look, you can't live any way you want because the reality is you're dead. Did you see that in the text? Look at it, verse 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ are what? Baptized into His death. Verse 4, we were buried with Him by baptism into what? Death. Verse 5, we were united with Him into what? In a death like His. Verse 6, your old self was crucified with Christ. Verse 8, we have died with Christ. In answer to the question, if the grace of the gospel is real, why does it matter how I live? Because you're dead to one life, and now alive to another. Look back at the text, the second half of those verses I just quoted. Verse 4, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Verse 5, united with Him in a resurrection life like His. Verse 7, the one who is dead is freed from sin. Verse 8, and we will also live with Him. Three times Paul stresses the importance of knowing this reality. See that there, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9. Do you not know? We know, we know. He stresses this over and over again as if verses 3 and 6 establish this foundational truth and verses 9 and 10 kind of sum up the argument. It goes kind of like this. If the penalty of sin is death, we learned that last week, right? Romans chapter 5, where sin and death come from. It comes from Genesis 2.17, where the Lord said, look, if you violate my will, my character, my command, death will ensure. If the penalty of sin is death, and Christ conquered death through His resurrection once for all, then the penalty of death itself has been satisfied. Since the penalty of death has been satisfied in Christ and we are in Him, then sin's ultimate penalty has been paid. There's no more penalty for us to pay if we are in Christ and Christ conquered sin and paid its penalty. This is, keep your fingers in Romans, go to Hebrews chapter 7. This is one of the things that the author of Hebrews is writing about the ministry of Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in, we're going to start at verse 22. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 22. This makes, the, the, in, in chapter 7, the, the writer of Hebrews, he's, he's just comparing the new covenant that we have in the gospel to the old covenant of, of Judaism, and in every way, this new covenant is superior by far. And so, and he's talking about now Jesus as the mediator of this covenant. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, verse 23. The former priests of the Old Testament tabernacle system were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, obviously. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for those of the people. Why? Since He did this. Once for all, when he offered up himself. So, why fight hard against unrighteousness? Why live differently? Because you're dead to sin. And you are now free in Christ. You are dead to sin. You don't have to live like you once did because now you are free in Christ. But people will say, maybe your skeptical friends, but I'm free now. Are you? Really? If anything, I've heard people say something along these lines, believing in God, following the Bible's teachings, that will put limits on me. That, if anything, that limits my freedom. Following your Jesus and doing these things, that's limiting my freedom. I'm free now. Here's a thought experiment. If you maybe think that yourself or know someone who thinks that way, if you believe you're truly free, Try this for one week. Speak only what is true. Not even a white lie, not anything in the slightest way to shape the narrative that might benefit you or make you look good. Speak only what's true. Serve others entirely without a single thought of being recognized for it, even when other people are receiving the credit. Give of your time and resources generously without any expectation or entitlement for returned favors. Do all these things, speaking constant truth, serving others joyously, being generous with what you have. Do it all with a joyful attitude and patience towards all. If you're free, like you say you are, this should not pose a problem. But as you're already assuming, if you're honest you'll find you're not free to do this at all. And let me tell you why. It turns out most people just confuse freedom with doing what what they want, which people will say, isn't that the definition of freedom? I can do what I want. Is the addict free? Isn't he or she just doing what they want? Is the angry man or woman free? Aren't they just doing what they want when they blow their top in rage? Is the sexually promiscuous free? Aren't they doing what they want when they go from one meaningless encounter to another meaningless encounter? Are the lonely free? Aren't they doing what they want when they push other people away because relationships are too demanding of them? You see, all these people are doing what they want, but I don't think anyone here would say that they're free. Right? So, A biblical worldview helps us understand what freedom actually is. Freedom is not simply doing what you want. Freedom is the ability to do what you should. The addict should be clean. The angry should be patient. The sexually promiscuous should be chaste. The lonely should be sacrificial. See, 
we were slaves to our own desires. We just believed that because they were our desires, we actually had freedom and didn't realize that the things we wanted were simply one more link in a chain that led to our bondage, and we had no idea it was bondage until the tragedy and the consequences hit, but it was too late at that point. You ask any addict, anyone consumed by their anger, anyone consumed by their sexual promiscuity, anyone consumed by loneliness, they got themselves there because they were doing what they want, expressing a freedom that enslaved. But the Bible teaches us we are actually freed from the most severest tyranny of sin and its curvature in towards ourselves, selfishness. Now, you need to keep in mind, as we study Romans 6, this is where sometimes chapter and verse divisions aren't as helpful. Romans 6 is still massively conceptually tied to the things we talked about in Romans 5. Remember Romans 5, Paul's talking about this cosmic realization that all of us are either in Adam number one and under the tyranny and consequence of that, or we are under Adam number two, Jesus Christ, and the blessing and freedom that comes with that. So look at verse 3, right? This is his language here. Baptized into Christ. Verse 4, buried with him. Verse 5, united with him in death, united with him in life. Verse 6, crucified with him. See, he's still, he's still riffing off that concept, concept from Romans 5, that we are in Christ. And Paul uses the metaphor of baptism to, of, of kind of dying and rising again, which is why here when we baptize people, When we put them under the water, we say, buried with Christ, as we dunk them in the water, and as we raise them, we say, to walk in newness of life again, because that comes directly from Romans 6.4. That's the verse that we have on our t-shirts. Now, the actual act, as you know, is merely symbolic of a reality affected by the work of Christ upon the cross, which is why, by the way, Paul immediately follows up that metaphor with a statement in verse 6 of our crucifixion with Christ. Now, We have not been obviously physically crucified with Christ. We have not physically died with Christ. But in verse 5, Paul makes it very clear in some unusual, unknown way to us, we are united with Christ in those actions. We are in Christ. And what happens to Christ happens to us. And because Christ satisfied sin's penalty, it has no more debt to call upon us for if we're in Christ. And we, we understand these kinds of principles in all of our lives. If, if you're in a car, what happens to the car happens to you. Where the car goes, you go. You're in the car. And whether it's physical or maybe even digital, you know, I have a file in my iPad, right? So maybe it's not a physical thing, but it's here digitally. And even beyond physical or digital, we have a sense in which I have a thought in my head. The chicken crosses the road. Is that thought in my head? Yes, but no. Like, you can open my head, and you will not find the physical representation, the chicken crossed the road. But is the thought in my head? Yes, it is. So we understand what it is to be in something in such a way that there's a unity there, even though it may not be physical or something we can tangibly touch. We understand what it is to be in something. My wife and I are in a marital union. The fact that she not, is physically not present in the room in no way lessens the marital union that we are in together. In the same way, Paul's meaning is crystal clear, if not on the details, but the message. If we, have, if we are in Christ, when Christ died, we died with Him, and when He rose again, we rose again with Him. 
It's our identification with Him that sets us free. Now, this, it might be helpful to realize as we're talking about sin here, especially in Romans chapter 6 and these, these next couple chapters, it's probably different than what we tend to think about sin, at least on the forefront. And this is really important if you're going to understand sin and the battle against sin. There are two levels to it. When we typically think about sin, it's a good chance we are thinking of the practice of sin, sinning, right? So lying, cheating, lusting, exercising self, uh, self-pity or gossip, fighting amongst ourselves, whatever it might be, we think of the practice of sinning, whereas Paul is establishing here in Romans 6, not so much the practice of sinning, but the power of sin as kind of a principle or maybe like as a penalty, and we live in or under this penalty, kind of like a hockey player sits in the penalty box. It is a sphere, an area that we inhabit. And so Paul's, imagine a skeptical friend here in verse 1 who says, are we to continue in sin? It's the same root verb that Jesus uses in John 15 when he talks to his disciples and say, for the one who wants to remain, abide, continue in me. It's the same word being used, same concept. In other words, it is living in a sphere of life that we're choosing to inhabit. So what Paul is saying is that in some sense, you were freed, you were a captor under bondage of this sin, this taskmaster, and you've been freed from that, delivered, which is why Colossians 1.13 uses this language. You were transformed the domain of darkness into the kingdom. Paul is saying, you got rescued from your captor, and now why do you want to go back here? That's kind of the idea he's getting at. Not so much your practicing of sin, but the fact that sin dominates you and exercises an oversight of your life. Those two realities are very important, and you need to keep them distinct. Because, a little sneak peek into a couple weeks, sin's power's been broken, but hey, we are still struggling with it, aren't we? Yes. And we'll talk a little bit about that at the end of this message. The point I'm getting at is, when Paul's talking about sin here, it's not necessarily as a practice that you and I commit, as much as a penalty or a power that dominates our lives. So the question is, are we to continue in this sphere, in this life marked by, characterized, dominated by sin as a taskmaster? We have been set free from that. In Romans 6, as I said, it's talking about our identification with Christ. We died and rose with Him. Sin's legal claim has been broken because Christ paid the penalty, and we being in Him we paid the penalty as well. And so sin has no claim over you because the penalty has been paid by Christ. And if you're in Him, that penalty, you, and if you're in Him, you paid the penalty because you're in Christ. This is the idea of justification by faith. And so Paul, as we kind of move through the passage in verse 11 says, consider now how you will live differently now that you're dead to sin and alive to God. Now, this word consider, you'll see it a lot of times in Romans, consider uh, accounting or reckoning. It is an accounting term. It's kind of what you would do when you bring out your checkbook. Nobody does that. Uh, your, your, your phone, your Mint app or whatever app you use to look at your budget. You're looking at your transactions, what's coming in, what's going out, and, and one of two things is going to happen. One, it all adds up, and you're doing okay. You keep on doing what you're going to keep on doing. Two, it doesn't add up, 
and you realize there has to be a change in how you're living or spending your money. So Paul's saying, you now consider you're dead to sin, there's the negative, and now you're alive to God, that's the positive. So it's only when Paul lays the foundation that you are in Christ and sin's claim over you is null and void. Can you now consider how to live differently? And he talks about in verse 12 and 13, some lifestyle commands or changes. And the first thing that I want to stress here, as I've already been kind of alluding to, is that uh, knowing comes before doing. It's very important here. In other words, in verse 2 and 10, through 10, Paul is helping us grapple with our identification with Christ and its consequence of freeing us from sin before he starts giving us commands. And that's really important, friends. The gospel is always about being before doing. It's always about understanding your position, your identity in Christ, what you are in Christ before what you do in Christ. In other words, you cannot live a changed life unless you have been changed yourself. And I like the way Paul starts. Notice in verse 12, he starts with a very kind of general rule. Don't live in this domain of sin. Don't let it reign. Notice the kingdom terminology. Don't let it reign over you. Why? Because you have a new king. You have a new taskmaster that you can choose to obey. It's from that general rule that Paul gets down to some really kind of specific commands. And I love how brass tacks they are. Notice what he says. Don't present your members, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears to unrighteousness. Think about that. How have you used your hands this week? Think about how have you used your hands this week? Did you raise them in anger at somebody? Or did you close them in prayer? How have you used these hands? How have you used your fingers? Did you use them to type an encouraging email to, to build somebody up? Or was it a critical email to tear somebody down? Have you ever given thought to how our, just our physical bodies can be a catalyst for righteousness or unrighteousness? Just in the very brass tacks of it. This past Wednesday, on, uh, Ace and I were on the 101 freeway in Hollywood. And there was a man, and he was upset with us because he drove around, and he stuck his member, his hand out, and gave us a big old bird, man. <laughs> it was for all the sea. I said, wow, Ace, look at that. He's giving us the bird. Now, I bet you that man was not thinking at that moment that he was a slave to sin. I bet you he was doing what he wanted to do, and that was to give me a piece of his mind. But he was a slave. He couldn't do anything other than to obey. And he brought unrighteousness out, right? Now, I had a choice at that moment too, right? What was my choice? I could return the gesture. No, pastor wouldn't do that. I'm I'm under grace, okay? So, no, I wouldn't do it. I'm just saying. The thought was there. I was like, "Mm, okay. But I was like, no, I'm not going to use my members for unrighteousness. I didn't do anything, actually. Just pointed out to Ace and we both kind of got a chuckle because this guy was really mad. Why? Because apparently I was on, in his kingdom on the 101, and I didn't know it was his kingdom. But that happens all the time. He was a slave to his kingdom in his own life. My point is, do we think about how just our physical bodies are a catalyst for righteousness or unrighteousness? How did you use your voice this week? Did you use your voice this morning to sing praise to God? Or did you use your voice to criticize maybe someone singing around you? What did you let your eyes settle on? 
What did you let their ears hear? What jokes landed upon your ears? What gossip did you entertain? Now, to be clear, Christian discipleship, Christian maturity and growth is so much more than these kinds of things, but certainly not anything less than just what are we doing with our physical bodies towards righteousness or unrighteousness. More to the point, though, notice the New Testament pattern that keeps coming up. Notice what Paul says. He says, don't do this, but rather do this. That should sound familiar in theme. Put off the old man, put on the new. Turn from your idols, turn to the living God. Deny yourself, pick up the cross. There's always these two pairs going going together, the positive and the negative. That's what discipleship is. Maybe you're not alive to God because you're not dead to sin yet. Have you killed your sin in Christ? Have you said, I am done with sin I want to be alive to Christ, or is sin like on a a bed with an IV just in case you need to go back and get some life from it? Maybe that's why you can't be alive to God, because you're just not dead to sin yet. They go hand in hand. Friends, we can do this. It'll be hard, no doubt. And Paul, thankfully, will walk us through that, especially as we look into it next week and the week after that in chapter 7. But the point Paul is getting at, he's laying the foundation, sin's dominion. Its back has been broken. You are now free to choose who will be your taskmaster. Have you thought of that? Have you thought, hey man, I can choose who will be my master? Because someone's going to be our master. There are two ditches to avoid when it comes to Paul's teaching here in Romans chapter 6. On the one hand, there's the ditch of... of, uh, being the triumphalist, right? Hey, I got this thing. Sin's been crushed. I can live however I want. It doesn't matter. The means of grace, fellowship, reading the Bible, prayer, all those, they're not necessary for me because I've reached sinless perfection. Now, I doubt any of you feel that way, right? But there are people who think that way. Charles Spurgeon, he was a Baptist preacher in London, met a man just like that. Preacher, Spurgeon, I have retained righteousness. I have, the old man is dead. I no longer sin. To which Spurgeon, holding a big glass of water, threw it in his face. And the guy got all upset. And he said, ah, there's the old man. He just needed some water to revive himself. (laughs) Right? There's this temptation to think, I'm okay. I got it. And so what happens is we're not intentional about how do we live our Christian lives. Am I bearing fruit? And let's face it, you can have cultivated Christian civilities. That's a mouthful, right? What I mean is, if you've been a Christian a while, you know how to fake the funk. You know what you need to say, how you need to act. You can get by, autopilot. That doesn't mean you're being conformed to the image of Christ. And so you can kind of think, so maybe you're not a triumphalist, but you're just on autopilot. It's not, you're not being intentional about victory in Christ. So that's one ditch. The other ditch to avoid is the ditch of defeatism, right? Why bother? I'm never going to have victory over this sin. The means of grace, fellowship, prayer, Bible reading, all these things, they're just not effective for me. So one thinks they're not necessary. The other thinks it's not effective. One is, 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 pays no mind to sin. One pays too much mind to sin. But they both result in non-intentional lives, not being deliberate. How do I have victory? Maybe it won't be the victory that you see around you, but it'll be better than what you had otherwise. 
So we want to avoid the ditch of defeatism uh, defeatism and the ditch of triumphalism. We want to be the realist, right? So there's the triumphalist, the defeatist, and the realist. And the realist says, look, sin's power, ultimately, its ultimate power, its back has been broken. Just like when the Allies landed on Normandy Beach in D-Day, June 6, 1944, at that moment, the Nazi war machine's back was effectively broken. But it was a whole year until May of 1945 or VE Day. And there were real fights, real battles, real losses. But VE Day was assured in May 1945, not because of 1945, but because of June 6, 1944. And in the same way, sin's back. It's ultimate power has been broken. Now, it's relative power. Its presence is still here. That's what we're going to talk a little bit more about next week, particularly and the week after that. Paul is just trying to lay the foundation. Do you know that you're dead to sin? Do you, do, do you know you've been delivered from that? Do you know that the cage, the jail doors have been brought open, and you're just kind of still hanging out inside? And the gospel says, come on out. Come on out. You are no longer under sin's dominion. How encouraging. Think about it. And in particular, I want to talk to some of you. If you've been struggling with ongoing sin and you're tempted to just give up, this will never change. You can choose to not sin. That doesn't mean you'll experience sinlessness. I'll be honest with you, there's probably going to be sins in my life that I will still be dealing with to the day I die. They're just characteristics of me. I'm a control freak. I will be telling my doctors and nurses how to do their job. That's how I am. I can't just relinquish to people. But there can be victory. Do you know that? That is Paul's message because sin's dominion has been broken because of Christ. I pray that that's so. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and um, we thank you. We thank you for D-Day, what Christ did on the cross, breaking the back of our enemy, Father, that we might have victory. And Father, we ask that we would present ourselves to you not as triumphalists or defeatists, but realists, recognizing that the war, the outcome has been won, but you call us to the skirmish, to the fight. And Lord, we do not know the reasons why some of our sin you miraculously just remove from us others you allow for us to fight and struggle through. But in either case, we want to give you the praise. In either case, we want to look to you. In either case, we want to lean upon you for the grace to overcome. Father, we know that uh, this side of heaven, we will never attain sinless perfection. But Father, we know in your sight, positionally, we have attained it because of Christ. Help us to live that out more and more in our practice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.